Thank you, Hannah. Morning, all. Welcome to WEC. If you're new or visiting for the first time, it's lovely to have you along. My name's Tim. I'm, oh, actually, presently I'm the only pastor here, but it's good to say that I'm not going to be on my own forever. Mike obviously is joining us. It is lovely. We are in Luke. We are going to stick around there and, and look at Luke 9 together. So would you pray with me as we begin? Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. As each week, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit to help us to read it. And we ask now that by your spirit, you would provide for us ears to hear and the courage and conviction to apply it to our lives, both for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Um, look, we live in uncertain times, don't we? Uh, increasingly uncertain times, I want to suggest. I don't think I'm going to have to convince anyone of that, that are sitting here. But just in case, take a moment to think about your present contexts. Think about it globally, nationally, locally, personally. And I think you'll readily realise that we all live with a good deal of uncertainty. It's not wrong to say these are uncertain times. I mean, again, think globally, the continual rise in tension between nations based on differences in politics or ideologies. You know, Australia and China, China and Taiwan, Taiwan and America, America and Russia, America in itself. (laughs) Fractious global entities with nuclear capacity leads to a level of uncertainty. <laughs> and that's to say nothing of the uh, global uncertainty brought, upon, uh, brought about by the, uh, the present COVID pandemic, which obviously has seen the world, well, it's seen it change dramatically. It's seen parts of the world shut down in some senses, travel banned, economies crippled. And of course, this has a, na- a natural flow on effect to each nation, and Australia is included in that. We're not, we're not absent from that. And regardless of where you sit politically on the issues surrounding things like lockdowns and mandates and social restrictions and whatnot, the one thing I think everyone surely can agree on is that they are uncertain times that we're living through. When will the restrictions end? When will I be able to have this idea of vaxxed and non-vaxxed people, my friends, to my house without breaking the, the, the new law? When can we stop wearing masks inside and freely sing praises to God at our church with Christian brothers and sisters? What really does December 15 hold? What changes will it look like? How will that material? Still, these are questions and there are, there are question marks hovering over all of those questions. There's a level of uncertainty. And particularly, I want to also mention at our church here for us right now, we're entering a new period of change and transition, which brings with it a level of uncertainty. Now, the Blanches have been a consistent, they have been the consistent in the life of our church from inception to last Sunday. Something significant has changed. Questions about our future are now materialised. There is a level of uncertainty lingering. And I've said nothing at this point about the personal circumstances that you, well, that only you know, that only you're able to actually understand and assess. But I'm hazarding a guess that in a lot of places, in a lot of people's lives, there's a level of uncertainty, whether it be over your health or your finances or your relationships or your work. The options are endless. Now, I'm not doing this, by the way. I'm not doing this to sort of overly dramatise anything. I'm not seeking to be an alarmist or to unsettle you. I'm not going to lead the charge to the underground bunker in the school car park. after. No, none of that sort of stuff. I just want us to think through this and try to reflect the reality as a church, as individuals to come to terms with this together, that we are far less in control than we like to pretend. And with that reality comes a level of uncertainty about the future. 
And the reason I want to underline that, and the reason I want to go there and explicitly point this out, is because I'm convinced that our passage today in Luke addresses this issue of uncertainty head on. I mean, I'm, I ought not be surprised by this, but how often does it seem that when, you're, when we're preaching and when we're going through books of the Bible, does the passage just seem to say, nail where you're at presently? I shouldn't be surprised by that, and yet I'm constantly delighted. I mean, hopefully you'll remember if you've been here for a while, we're in a sermon series on Luke. It's titled, He's the One. And each week we've been looking at what history reveals about Jesus and therefore what it means, what light it sheds on this idea of him being referred to as the One. And this week I want you to realise that Luke is helping us see that Jesus' provision, his ability to provide for his people, even and especially in times of uncertainty, this is the big idea I want you to see today. It's there on your outline. Jesus is the one he provides. But I don't want you to be convinced of that because I stand up here. I want you to be convinced of that because you see it in the text. So let's turn there now and let's have a look. Look at with me, uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The first thing we see Jesus providing here for his disciples is power and authority over demons and disease. Read it with me. Verse 1, when Jesus had called the twelve together... He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. You see there, it's like it's unambiguous at this point. It's clear as nose on your face. Jesus provides something here in the face of uncertainty, the the uncertainty of, of sickness and spiritual nasties. He gives power and authority to his chosen 12. But the question you need to keep asking here is to what end does he provide them with this thing? In fact, that's a question I think you just need to have in your back pocket always and trot it out when you come to that decision-making time. To what end am I doing this? Basically, what is the motivation? What is the purpose here of Jesus giving these people, these chosen 12, the power and authority over demons and disease? It's an important question to ask and answer. For example, did he give them the power and authority to raise their own public profile? Is that what Jesus was doing here? He just wanted to pump up their reputation in, in the eyes of others. Or did he give them this power and authority for more more personal reasons? He wanted the 12 to feel good about themselves and give them a little ego boost, a little bit of a self-esteem bump. Maybe they're a little bit flat at this point. Come on, guys, you can do it. You got this. Or did he give them this authority and power because he was sick of wielding it on his own? He was sick of people looking to him exclusively for help and support. And so he deputizes his bunch of ragtag followers to share the burden. To ease the pressure. Is that what he did it for? To what end does Jesus, to what, what purpose does Jesus give them power and authority over demons and disease? And I want to say again that the answer is actually pretty clear from the text, you realise. He gave it to them to aid the preaching of the kingdom of God. In other words, what I mean by that is the miraculous healings were not the end in and of themselves either for the people who benefited from them immediately or for the people administering them, the disciples. The signs and the symbols were not the end in themselves, but rather foretastes of the coming kingdom. These things indicated the arrival of God's Messiah, Jesus the Christ. He's the one. You see, Jesus didn't just give these 12 power and authority here, but more importantly, he also gave them a responsibility. I wonder if you noticed that in the text. He gave them a responsibility. It's implicit there. It's implied. It's actually spoken. He gave them responsibility to proclaim the news of God's kingdom, 
to announce the fulfillment of God's promises and prophetic expectations of old. This is the message he sent them out to proclaim and this proclamation was to be the centre stage. It was to be the main, the main attraction. Now that's really super important to realise. I think it puts signs and wonders both then and now in their proper context. They were not then and they are not now and ought not be the end in themselves. But if they are to occur, then pray they happen in a supporting role context. Pray that they happened in the context of helping the gospel proclaim so that people respond in faith, to faith, sorry, in faith and repentance to Christ as King and Saviour. Because this is entirely consistent with what we read in Luke's account of Jesus already, in fact. You realise the proclamation of God's kingdom come, of the Messiah present, this is Jesus' own stated priority. Quick flick back with me if you've got your Bible there to Luke 4.18. It's where Jesus is reading from the section of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 61, he rolls it over and he finds a section, a prophetic messianic expectation about the one whom God would send to do what? To preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for prisoners, to restore sight to the blind, to release people from oppression, declare the year of the Lord's favour. And then Jesus says, "Ah, that's me. This is who I am. I'm the one you've been waiting for. It's a bit of a mic drop moment, isn't it? I'm the one you've been waiting for. This is the message that now Jesus sends his disciples out with. Tell the people, God's kingdom has come, I'm him. I'm the one you're waiting for. Now that message, that sort of proclamation is by definition, it either makes Jesus a megalomaniac, that is someone who suffers from the worst case of overinflated ego, he's a loony, or he's a rabid liar, or it makes him the most important figure in all of human history. There's just simply no other option here, folks. He either is what he says he is, he's the one, or he isn't, and the historical evidence suggests the former, not the latter. The signs and the wonders continually back this up in abundance. Jesus is the one. But how does this apply to us? Look, how does it apply to us here and now? You ought to have the question, I'm assuming you do, and if you don't, you will now. How, do, does, how does this apply to us? Do we, ought we think that we have the power over uh, demons and disease? Is that, is that given to us as well? Is that what we should be expecting to do as people here, as Christians today? You ought be wondering that question. I'm not going to answer it just yet. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. For now... I want you to see that it's Jesus who provides in uncertain times not just the power and authority, but the responsibility and priority of proclaiming the kingdom of God, which by extension then brings certainty of God's favour. Jesus provides. But it's not all that Jesus provides here. In fact, the second point on your outline, if you're following along, Jesus provides something else here. He provides instructions and expectations in this time of uncertainty. I mean, play a little game with me here. Let's play imaginary for a minute. I like that game. Imagine that you're one of the 12 at this point in history. It's a pretty tricky, uncertain period of history to be living in as an ancient Israeli, as an ancient Israelite. I mean, think about it. There's pressure from the ruling government. You've got an oppressive regime of others, the Romans. That's tricky to deal with as a Jew. You've got the pressure coming from the ruling religious class from your own nation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Oh, that makes it tricky to navigate, you know, socially and politically. How do you mesh those two things together? Then you've got the rising tide of unrest among your fellow countrymen who are unhappy with both those entities. 
So those giving rise to separatist groups and anti-establishment types like the zealots. You might remember Simon the zealot, one of Jesus' followers. He's a zealot. He's one of these anti-establishment folks. He likes to shank people in the crowd. Well, that makes you live with a little bit of an increasing threat to -to day-to-day life, doesn't it? And now you find yourself as part of a a merry band of followers of an ex-carpenter from the backwaters of Galilee who somehow risen from obscurity making outlandish claims about being the son of God. And despite the, the kookiness of that, <laughs> that sound, he continually says and does things that seem to back up this claim. He continually does stuff that you can't deny. And it seems as though he is the fulfillment of all these ancient prophecies. But what's more confusing at that point is that many people, including the religious elite who are supposed to be on the lookout for this man, who are supposed to be the ones who are expecting his arrival, God's Messiah, they don't want a bar of him. They think he's a fruit loop. And now this Jesus, he says to you, it's time to split up, guys. I want you to go out and I want you to spruit to the masses. I want you to let them know the Messiah is here. Tell them I'm him. And if that doesn't sound unnerving enough, then he adds, what's more, don't take any supplies for your journey. <laughs> In fact, look at it there in verse 3. What does Jesus say to them as he sends them out with power and authority to heal, to heal diseases, to cast out demons, to proclaim the kingdom of God? Then he says, verse 3, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Essentially, just rock up to a town. If they welcome you, good, stay and preach. Trust they'll provide for you. If they don't welcome you, well, shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. Imagine it was you receiving those instructions. Are you nervous much? Absolutely. (laughs) Are you uncertain a little? You bet. And it's not just the instructions that carry nothing that sends shivers up my spine. More so, it's the expectation that Jesus raises that there will be places who do not welcome you or the message you carry. He doesn't hide that fact. That That terrifies me. It still terrifies me. I mean, think about this for a second. If you're a Christian here already today, isn't this at least part of what stops you from telling your neighbour or your co-worker or your family or your friends or even just the stranger you happen to bump in down the street? Isn't it the fear of rejection or of being labelled as a loony? Isn't this at least a part of one of the reasons why you don't tell every single person you come across the good news about Jesus? Is it because you know intrinsically that not everyone will welcome the good news of the gospel as good news? And that is terrifying to your tender conscience, to your tender self-concept? It is to me. I mean, I was writing this paragraph, literally writing this paragraph down in the the food court of the marketplace on Friday. I'm an extrovert. I like to be around people. I don't want to necessarily be a part of the crowd. So I sit my headphones on. I'm listening to rain, but I'm in the the zone there. (laughs) See, I'm working. I'm writing this and it struck me. What's stopping me right this moment from standing on the table, calling all to attention and preaching the gospel? I was considering it for a minute. And at least part of the reason that I didn't was the fear of rejection and ridicule. At least part of the reason. Now, I say part of the reason because I I do want to acknowledge at this point, there is a rightness to appreciating the context that you're in. There is a rightness to respecting and valuing the norms of society. There's a rightness to the fact that I don't want people to dismiss me as a lunatic and therefore dismiss the gospel as the ravings of a lunatic. 
which standing on the table unannounced in the marketplace would probably do. So I, I didn't do it, right? I'm not advocating that position. I think there's better ways to, to, to preach the gospel. I think it's such a personal message that it needs to be done in a, in a, in a tender, personal way. But besides the importance of respecting the social norms, I've got to acknowledge and admit that there is at least a part of the, part of the fear is a personal rejection that stops me. There's the feeling of not wanting people to think less of me or to label me as a, a hateful, hardline, bigoted, unlightened, fill in any other adjective you care to, to name that's nasty because the genuine gospel is so confronting that people will say those things about you if you share it for all it's worth. You realise that, don't you? By definition, the claim that Jesus is Lord, the claim that what he says is all that matters, that is not well liked by those who don't want to hear it. That will not be accepted happily by those who are actively living in opposition to it. And it terrifies me. But I want you to see here, what I want you to see here is that Jesus is providing that expectation up front. He doesn't want you to be unaware. He knows that will be the case. He wants you to know it too. And it doesn't stop him from saying this is what you ought to do. In fact, it's, it's, it's funnily enough, it's one of those other reasons why I think you can, you, you can and ought trust Jesus. Absolutely. It's because he doesn't sugarcoat the truth. There's no fine print with Jesus. There's no hidden clauses here. <laughs> There's no... Um, Surprise intergalactic warlord named Xenu hiding behind the curtain who's revealed only you've been, after you've been following for a couple of years and invested thousands of dollars. Shout out to my Scientology friends out there. I mean, we'll see it really starkly next week. If you want to follow Jesus genuinely, he says, then be prepared to pick up your cross daily and follow. In other words, it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. It may cost you your life. It may cost you your life and yet it's still worth it. More on that next Sunday. But right now, see that Jesus didn't just provide the disciples with authority and power or solely with instructions, but also with right expectations. He sent them out saying, this is going to get awkward. Some people won't want to hear it, but that never changes the priority of proclaiming it. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? At least in part, he's doing this, for, uh, friends, so that they might learn to wholly depend on him, not just for their physical needs, staffs and tunics and food, and, but for the fruitfulness of their mission also. He is drawing them deeper by necessity into dependence on him. It's a marvellous thing, I think, to recognise your daily dependence on God. It is an excellent, scary, right, comfortable space to be. It is completely oxymoronical, isn't it? And yet it's another highlighting of the fact that we need to embrace Jesus really does provide. What's the implications for us? What's the implications for us here in the now? Again, hold that thought. I'll bring it back to the implications at the end. But let's go to the third point of provision in the text. Notice next that Jesus doesn't just provide them with instructions and expectations here. He also provides them with real rest. We'll do this one quickly, but look at it there in verse 10. When the apostles returned... They reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew to a, by themselves to a town named Bethsaida. Now, I, want to, I just want to draw out here two more principles that Jesus is demonstrating about gospel ministry. The first one's right there in verse 10 we just read. 
It's that the proclamation of the gospel, whether it's welcomed or it's rejected, or whether it's kept at arm's length and treated with a kind of intellectual curiosity and nothing more. We saw that in Herod's reaction there. You would have heard it when Jeff read it out in verses 7 to 9. Herod sort of is interested in it, but sort of, I don't know what to do with that. I don't want to send it away, but I don't want to bring it close. I'll just sort of hold it there. We'll deal with him later at the end of Luke. But regardless of the reception the gospel receives, for the one proclaiming it, it is a tiring quest. The topics of conversation prompted by the proclamation of Jesus as God's Messiah, as it was in the context we're reading here in Luke, or the context of the other, oh, sorry, the, the, uh, the conversations prompted by the proclamation of Jesus as the crucified, risen, ascended, universal king who is coming back to judge the living and the dead and now offers you amnesty. As it is for us, the gospel is apparent from our historical vantage point. That's what we get to proclaim. The implications of these claims and the topic it touches on, they're so all-consuming, so all-encompassing, so ultimate in every aspect, that's exhausting to think about, much less explain. Now, you'll know this if you've ever had one of those marathon conversations with someone who really wants to understand your fascination with Jesus or your insistence on the Bible or wants to really understand what does it mean to be not just a card-carrying cultural Christian, but a genuine bona fide follower of Jesus. You'll know this if you've been in one of those conversations where people want to jump from question to question, to topic to topic, one seeming conundrum to the next. These are the most exhilarating conversations to be a part of. There's no more important conversations to be had, no more ultimate subjects to be discussing than who is God and what does he expect from humanity generally and me personally? They're fantastic, exciting stuff, but it's exhausting. <laughs> Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's exhausting. A couple of hours of that kind of conversation will energize and annihilate you at the very same time. And that's okay. In fact, that's realistic. It's why it's so encouraging, I think, to see here Jesus attending, genuinely attending to the creaturely limitations of his disciples by now withdrawing them to provide them rest. Come with me, boys. Let's go over here. It's yet another one of his provisions. And it remains a necessary element of gospel ministry today. Still today, we're not robots, friends. Don't pretend to be. We need rest. I always think about it. If I didn't take that time, I think I used it at Bible study during the week. Back in my days as a butcher, if I didn't take that five minutes every hour to sharpen my knife, gosh, it's hard cutting with a blunt knife. You can still get it done, but it's really not fun. Taking the time out to sharpen the edge, this is what he's doing here. Come aside, let's sharpen the edge. But notice that something else is happening here, the very next verse, verse 11. It's the other gospel ministry principle at play simultaneously. Look, Read it with me there in verse 11. It says this, But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now, do you hear that? Though rightly tired, though reasonably seeking some time out, Jesus never misses an opportunity to teach people about the kingdom of God. He welcomes them. He doesn't go, Ugh. <laughs> there's none of that in there anyways. He welcomes them and he willingly teaches them the kingdom of God. He, he provides for their needs again. The necessity of rest and the urgency of the task are here presented hand in hand. 
But before we rush off and try to suggest that therefore the gospel means you can never take another holiday, before we suggest that it means that you are now on call 24-7 to the beck and call, uh, any whim or question or whiff of anything that someone wants, just hold your horses, just cool your jets for a second. Because it is reasonable It is reasonable to point out that the gospel is worth sharing even when you're tired. It's also worth recognising here who it is teaching the kingdom at the point of human weakness. What I mean is, who actually takes up the the charge now? It's Jesus. What I mean is, though he shares our humanity in every way, and he experienced firsthand the limitations of the flesh, don't for a second forget that he is at the one and the same time the second person of the triune God. And therefore, his capacity to affect the hearts and the mind of people is, how shall I say, somewhat more pronounced than yours and mine. What I mean by this is why we need to hear this is I don't want any of us to ever fall into the trap of thinking or pretending that you need to play Christ to people. You can't. I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that it's your personal efforts that will be the deciding factor of someone's eternal salvation or not. It won't. That doesn't diminish the fact that Jesus has given us real responsibilities, real instructions, coupled with realistic expectations. But at the point of genuine human exhaustion, when your own coping skills are barely meeting your own needs, much less the needs of others, or when you can't be present physically for that friend who's having an existential crisis for some reason. When that happens, and get me, it will happen, make sure that you've already realised when it comes to the pointy end of someone's salvation, you can't provide it, but Christ can. See, regardless of the fact that you and I can't be available to every person 24-7, God is. It's at the point of human exhaustion when they can't, Jesus does. He can. You see, in just two verses here, Jesus provides both the rest and the reassurance that we need if gospel ministry and gospel mission is going to be seen rightly. He is in control. And just in case, just in case you thought that imitation of Christ was still possible, then we read in the next section, again, something that highlights just the the chasm of difference between us and Jesus. It's the feeding of the 5,000 plus, isn't it? Now, there's, again, there's, there's stacks that we could draw out of this section. There's lots of little hidden Easter eggs for the savvy readers you know, in this spot. There's lots of hints and throwbacks to old, old Testament figures and events that really do help us see something of the significance of who Jesus is more clearly. But for the purposes of today, I just want you to zoom in on the issue of provision again, on how this section reinforces that big idea that Jesus provides. But it's not just the material provision of the food that I want you to focus on. I mean, don't get me wrong. The idea of multiplying five loaves of of bread and two fishes to feed 5,000 men, and because of that, likely just as many or more women and children. I mean, that's a phenomenal feat, obviously. I was just telling Trudy before, I remember as a kid being given a couple of chicken crimpies before dinner at my nan's place and being dissatisfied with it, sat under the table, pulled the chairs in and prayed for a few more and... It didn't work. (laughs) It's a big thing. I don't know why I remember that. I said that was like 35 years ago, I reckon. Anyways, I remember it distinctly. Couldn't get the chicken creepies to multiply. Jesus is doing something different to me. But it's not where I want your focus to land. Neither is it in the abundance of the food provision that I want you to especially note, though the fact that there is still 12 baskets of leftovers, even after everyone has eaten to satisfaction, 
clearly an important point about the capacity of Jesus' provision. That is, it is in abundance, but it's not where I want you to land or focus your gaze. Rather, what I want you to see is how all these instances of Jesus' provision, of the power and authority, of instruction and expectations, of rest and reassurance, of material need in abundance, I want you to focus in on how all these instances combine provide us yet with another opportunity to reflect on the magnificence of who Christ is. The magnificence of who Jesus is. And because of that, the utter joy and privilege of A, being invited to trust him personally, and B, the joy and the privilege of sharing that invitation with others who haven't yet realised the joy and privilege themselves. You see, the evidence of Jesus' provision here mark him out as the one worth sharing, sorry, the one worth trusting and the one worth sharing. And unless you think that all that Luke has written here is just utter poppycock, unless you think, despite the evidence of history, that Judas didn't say and do the things he recorded and corroborated by the eyewitnesses in other places also, if, unless you think that that is somehow possible, then you haven't, I don't want to use the word obligation, but I, you'd be a nut not to trust him in all circumstances and tell all people about him. Point blank. You'd be crazy. The logical extension of the fact that if he is the one, then he's the one we're talking about. He's the one with trusting and telling. Because saying you're a Christian or a follower of Christ and not doing those two things, actively trusting and actively telling, it's nonsensical. It would make a mockery of your alleged faith. Now, do you feel the weight of that? <laughs> Does that unsettle you just a little bit? Does it make your chest just hang a little heavier? If yes, then Good. You're tracking with what I'm saying here. I feel the weight too. And if no, then check your pulse, please. And reconsider what it means when you say that you're a Christian, if that's what you say. And I mean that sincerely and for your good. Take stock. In fact, let me give you a, a, a concrete implication, an example of what the truth of Jesus provides, what that should look like for us as a church today. I mentioned earlier the issue of power and authority over demons' disease. I asked that question of how we should expect that to you know, manifest in our day and age with us. Let me put it really simply. The power and authority over the physical signs and wonders on this side of the cross are less important, are less necessary and less impressive than the power and authority that we've been given by God's Spirit living inside of us to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness through Christ, through which people can be saved and healed eternally, not just temporarily. This does not mean that the physical signs and wonders are not possible in our day and age. I'm not a cessationist, if you want to get technical and, and use a theological term. I'm not a cessationist. God can and does act in all manner of miraculous ways through any person at whatever time, for his own purposes. I have no hassle with that. But the pursuit of those things at the expense of preaching the gospel and leading people to genuine repentance and faith in Christ is a poor second cousin at best. If that's not blunt enough, let me blunt it up a little bit more. If you were to gain the, the power, the miraculous power to heal someone of cancer with a touch of the hand or a blink of the eyes but you didn't share with them the invitation to salvation through Christ alone, you've done them a misservice. 
Oh, you may have extended their life by 30 years. But if all you've done is delay their entry into judgment and damnation for eternity, 30 years is a drop in a bucket, it's a spit in the ocean. You've done a violence, not a favour. If I get a little bit worked up about this, <laughs> it's because I, I, I get so angry and I get so annoyed and you ought also, when you hear of claiming Christian groups who put all their time and energy into chasing and promoting miraculous physical healings at the expense of proclaiming biblical spiritual truths that actually last. That is appalling. The implication for us then, folks, let us never be a church corporately or Christians individually who would seek this sort of power and pleasure temporarily at the expense of eternal significance. Let us never be the people who focus on the temporary at the expense of the eternal. I mean, John 6.68, it's at that point where, after, it's actually after John's recount of the same feeding miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 men plus everybody else, that Peter makes this right connection. In fact, what happens in John 6.68, it'll come up on your screen in a minute. But basically what's happening is people see this miraculous feeding and they have an expectation of what they want Jesus to do. In fact, they want to make him king by force. They want him to dance to their tune. They want, free, they want the guy who can provide free food at infinitum. That's what they want. And when Jesus says he's not going to do that, then some of his disciples, it says, start to leave him in droves. Some of his disciples say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And they start walking away. And then Jesus turns to the twelve and he says to them, do you want to go too? And Peter nails it. <laughs> John six sixty eight. he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, what Peter's saying here is, I don't care what other people's opinion is. I don't care what other people think you should do for them, Jesus. Let others chase the signs and wonders that fit their, eternal, their earthly desires. I'm sticking with you and your word and your way as first priority. He doesn't necessarily go, no, she's sweet, I understand everything perfectly, Jesus. He goes, oh, where else am I going to go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life, which means now by definition we have the words of eternal life. We can share those with others. Let that always be our attitude as individuals, folks, that we would put as first priority, sticking with Jesus' words and Jesus' ways. What does it mean then? If you've got the gift, the spiritual gift of healing, which, let's be honest, Paul mentions 1 Corinthians 12. Um, I think I've got it on the screen here. Let me just give you a little bit of a taste of it. 1 Corinthians 12 Verse 7 says, Paul speaking, a demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of languages. To another, interpretations of languages. But one and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. I don't have a hassle with the fact that these are still about. But if you've got the gift, the spiritual gift of healing, that's great. Preach the gospel. If you've got the spiritual gift of discernment and you can notice some sort of spiritual reality that I can't see, fantastic. Preach the gospel. 
if those things are used for anything other than what is beneficial, then don't do it. Preach the gospel. Friends, the implications are just massive. Look at the words of eternal life. Don't let them die in your mouth. And the final application that I want us to see from this passage for us here today really, as I said, speaks directly to our present context. Because knowing and believing and trusting that Jesus provides has never been more significant or important for us as a church as we navigate this present flux, this present period of transition and change. And can I say that the expectation that Jesus has had for his disciples in, this day, in that day, it's the same for us today. The proclamation of the kingdom, an entry of which is only through Jesus alone, it's still the priority. And as we go about this sharing of that news, we are just as dependent on God in every aspect from the physical to the spiritual response of others. God is providing everything necessary from start to finish. Whether that means we have 10 people worshipping here on a Sunday or 10,000, God is providing everything from start to finish. The result, the fruitfulness, the effectiveness is in his hands. He gives us a responsibility to proclaim. And can I also say then, just God's provision for us as a church already in the first 15 years and now at this transitional, at this transitional point is already in abundance. God is already raising up new people from among us to help to keep us focused in this direction of proclaiming the gospel as first priority. Whether you're a child or an adult, whether you're single or married, whether you've got kids or grandkids or no kids, God is already raising up people to fit all those categories to help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I mean, just think of all the things that God has already started to uh, and continues to provide for us as a church in a desire to see the kingdom advance in Wagga. I'll give you a few concrete examples. He's not here now, so I can say, Mike Lance has just set aside a career of 20 years with a five-day working week and 12 weeks paid holidays (laughs) to come and put his shoulder to the wheel in full-time gospel ministry. That's career suicide, if you like, in one sense. Like, that's nuts. Who does that? A person who's convinced by God's spirit that this is actually worthwhile and better and good. And not just that, his wife and his kids are on board with the idea. (laughs) I'm not trying to unnecessarily big Mike up at this point. What I want to do is praise God for his provision. And we've got a group of ladies here who have put their hand up to volunteer significant time and effort each week to see our kids' ministry continue to fire at church. In fact, to my count, seven key people in the last six months have raised their hand to lead significant portions of the kids' ministry. That's not to mention the dozens of others who then teach kids' church week in, week out. Praise God for his provision. I've just kicked off a preaching group with nine men from our church who have agreed to regularly meet up to sharpen each other, to be faithful, fruitful teachers of God's word. Not just here for our sake at WEC, but that we might be a, a support and encouragement to other churches in need of that kind of service. Praise God for his provision. You see, I could go on for a little, I could go on for a lot longer. I could actually go through and name every one of the 90 people who we had at one of our recent ministry team lunches. People who again give up significant time and effort to see the gospel ministry that's happening here at work work under God prayerfully using their efforts and their energy and their time and their resources to see God proclaimed and people saved. What I'm trying to get at here is that in these uncertain times, 
friends, we have a reason for certainty. We have a message of urgency. We have a hope that lasts for eternity. And it's all about Jesus. He's the one. He provides everything we need. Praise God for his provision. Would you pray with me? Let's give thanks to me, mate. Heavenly Father, it is truly mind-boggling the extent of your awesomeness and your grace and your provision to us through Christ Jesus. For the, for the gift of salvation from beginning to end, the overflow of your goodness which draws us in, which justifies us and now sanctifies us that we might be glorified with you in heaven. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would continue to grow in us here a certainty of what you have already achieved for us through Christ. And because of that, Father, you provide us with a conviction and a clarity on the, on the gospel as priority. And the courage, Father, that you would give us courage to proclaim this personally and winsomely, regardless of the response that it receives, because we want to honour you. And through us, Father, please provide people who are currently living in darkness, currently living in opposition and alienation from you. Please, through your word and by your spirit, give people who know only hopelessness, give them a hope that will last through eternity, through faith in Jesus exclusively. And we pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.